God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it shapes us and forms us and inspires us. And I just pray that it would speak this morning through me or in spite of me. God, would you lift the spiritual blindness that might be in, in us? And would you allow us to see the beauty and the wonder of Jesus? Lord, I'm under no delusions that I possess the ability for people to see that, but your spirit can. And so we're asking for his help. In Jesus' name, amen. John Newton is a famous pastor who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. But he has one of the greatest stories you can imagine. He was born in 1725. He was a rebel and in many ways an evil man. A captain of a slave ship, a slave trading ship that profited off the ruining of lives and selling of people of property. His mother was a devout Christian who prayed for him regularly But he was not only disinterested in the things of faith, but had actually embraced a lifestyle that made the other sailors blush. In 1748, when he was 23 years old, everything changed. During a raging storm, John Newton cried out to the Lord, and from that moment forward, his life changed forever, slowly at first, and then radically. He met Jesus. Newton left the slave trade and after a short stint as a tide surveyor in England, began training to become a pastor. He entered the pastorate at age 39 and preached the gospel of Jesus until he died. He eventually, after pastoring a small rural church in the English countryside, pastored a church in London and became the pastor of a man named William Wilberforce. And together, they did much good to bring down the African slave trade. While a pastor, Newton penned many hymns, but none is more famous than this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It's that last phrase that I think is particularly applicable to the passage this morning. I once was blind, but now I see. See, there's something about those words that describe how we view life before and after Jesus. I used to not be able to see him. I used to not be able to perceive reality rightly. I was blind, but now I see everything differently. See, the ability to see physically is such a gift, isn't it? I mean, hardly a day goes by where we're not drawn at least to glance at the lake or to a green tree growing or to a flower or to something beautiful, a sunset in the sky. The gift of sight is what most of us have, but not all of us because of the brokenness of this world, the frailty and the curse of sin. But anytime the Bible mentions blindness, and in particular when there's a miracle surrounding blindness, there's a physical reality that's taking place in the story, but there are always spiritual overtones that are giving and infusing the passage in the story with incredible meaning. There's a physical dimension to our sight, the ability to see things, but there's also a spiritual dimension to be able to see spiritual reality rightly. 
In Acts 13, we read the story of the first missionary journey of Barnabas and Paul. They're sent out by the church in Antioch that we looked at last week. And as they head to the island of Cyprus, which was Barnabas' hometown, home area, this is what we read. Chapter 13, verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues to the Jew, of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. That's John Mark. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So Barnabas and Paul and John Mark travel through the whole island of Cyprus, preaching the gospel in the different Jewish synagogues along the way. From Salamis on the east, if you look at the map, to the, the west side, to the city of Paphos. But isn't it interesting, with that long trip and journey and all of those stopped, we only get one story. A story of the conversion of Sergius Paulus, who was the Roman proconsul there, so pretty much the governor of the entire island, the most significant political person with the greatest political power on the island of Cyprus. It was his conversion. It's Paul and Barnabas' interaction with him and one of his advisors, a false prophet by the name of Bar-Jesus or Elamis. Now, have you ever gone on an epic trip or maybe a mission trip and you had all of these experiences and all of these stories to tell and someone asks, how was your trip? And you struggle in that moment to how do I even bring into words or simple stories all the things that I experienced? You ever had that experience? Like, how do I tell you what happened the last week and a half of my life? Stories just don't seem to do it justice. I get the sense that the island of Cyprus had to have been like that, and yet we only have one story. The story of one man's conversion and the, the interaction or the, the, the evil of a man named Bar-Jesus who tried to keep him from believing, which makes you wonder, why this story? Of all the stories that the Spirit could have preserved from the time on the island of Cyprus, why this one? And perhaps the simple answer is it was the conversion of the most powerful political leader on the island. I mean, that alone would make it significant and worthy to tell the story. And yet there's a miracle that takes place. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, a rather odd miracle because it takes away something that's good and beautiful. Striking a man with blindness, a Jewish false prophet by the name of Bar-Jesus who's trying to keep the proconsul in the dark, and he is made blind. 
Now, do you see the irony of the story? The man who should be able to see, the Jewish prophet who's seen as an advisor, probably a spiritual advisor, to this Roman official, is spiritually blind and attempting to keep the politician from seeing. And the least likely guy in the world, the Roman politician that we would expect to see and believe that Jesus is not only the Messiah, but the Savior for his life as well, sees. And so the miracle that takes place simply illustrates the spirit in, in the spiritual reality, illustrates in the physical world what's taking place in the spiritual reality. The man who is blind spiritually, who's trying to keep others blind spiritually, is struck blind physically, so that the one who's spiritually curious can see. Saul, who is first called Paul in verse 9 of chapter 13, and from this point on in the book of Acts, he's called Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, confronts Bar-Jesus, and he says this, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord, and then the Spirit strikes him blind? I mean, who speaks like that? Unless, of course, it's Obi-Wan Kenobi, speaking of Moss Eisley. You will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be careful. Yet the miracle, if you're familiar with the New Testament, here is rather odd. Most of the time when you see miracles in the New Testament, you see the Spirit doing something redemptive, like healing a sick person, or restoring the sight of a blind person, or restoring the healing or the, the hearing of a deaf person, or, or causing a lame person to walk, because in Jesus' ministry, he proclaimed that God's rule and reign has come into your midst. The kingdom of God is here. And what Jesus and his disciples later on were doing is demonstrating the signs of that rule and that reign, which means that God will use his power to bring about redemption in all of its scope, that all of the places that the curse of sin has touched, God will begin to reverse when he's on the throne, when he is ruling and reigning, and that future spiritual kingdom that will come to be on the earth is breaking back into the here and now so that Jesus could say, the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's showing not just that he has God's power, but how he's going to use God's power to restore all things. But here we see that that same kingdom that's being declared in Jesus is now seen through the lens of judgment, to bear on human evil. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, makes plain physically what is going on spiritually. Bar Jesus, whatever his power is as a magician or a sorcerer, he is spiritually blind and seeking to keep the proconsul Sergius Paulus, in his blindness. So isn't it odd that we see a miracle of destruction and judgment rather than one of love and restoration? It shows us at the very least that when God's kingdom come, he will bring judgment upon evil and upon evildoers. Now, sometimes, and we see this in the story of Jesus, and we see this in the life of the apostles, and we even see this in our lives, our lives now, we realize that the kingdom of God, even though it is a future reality fully, touches this world. That we experience it in power, at least in part. That sometimes people are healed when we pray for them. Because God is a God of restoration. 
that we get to experience the blessing of forgiveness with God and extended to one another, that we get the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life so that we can actually commune with God even though not yet face to face. Some of the future reality of that kingdom is brought to bear in the here and now, but sometimes in the biblical story, some of the future reality of God's judgment is brought to bear in the here and now. And that's what we're seeing here in this story. Bar-Jesus is struck blind and cannot see for a time. And upon seeing this demonstration of power, Sergius Paulus believes the word that was spoken to him. Now, you got to wonder if this struck a chord a little bit with the Apostle Paul. Because being struck blind was his story, wasn't it? Acts chapter 9, four, four chapters before Paul was, or Saul, was a persecutor of the church. He saw these Jesus followers, these people of the ways, as blasphemers, heretics that were leading people away from the true worship of Yahweh. And so he made it his personal mission to arrest them, to persecute them, to try to bring them back to the faith. And he was on the way to Damascus to do that very thing, to arrest Christians, bring them back for trial, so that maybe he could win them back over. And, and everybody would see this Jesus as being this false messiah, when he got something he didn't bargain for. Jesus appeared to him and knocked him off his horse and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This profound connection between Jesus and his people so that to persecute Jesus' people is to actually persecute him. And he struck blind. He who thought he could see it all and thought he could see so clearly was struck blind and he's led by the hand into the city of Damascus and a guy by the name of Ananias has to come and pray over him and it says something like scales fell from his eyes and he could see and that was the turning point in this man's life from persecutor of Christians to now bold proclaimer of the gospel and he spends the rest of his life proclaiming the truth in Jesus because he met him. He was blind, but then he saw, and now he sees this guy spiritually blinding people, and he says, you're going to be struck blind for a time. And that's exactly what happens. Paul, like John Newton, would say, I once was blind, but now I see. Paul might even say, I once claimed to see, but I actually was blind. So here's the thing, whether it's John Newton or the Apostle Paul or Bar-Jesus or Sergius Paulus or you or me, our natural state as human beings is that we are spiritually blind and needing to see reality rightly, needing to see spiritual truth and physical truth rightly. We think we see just fine, but in reality we're blind. And we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see. What do you think you see that you really don't? Or are you in any way spiritually blind this morning? One of the ways that we are conditioned by our culture that we live in is to think that spiritual reality isn't actual reality. We're brought up to believe that things like angels and demons and miracles are kind of this other out there type of truth, but have no or very little bearing on our everyday life. See, one of the things that I struggled with as a young believer, and I went to public school, and, and I had these competing worldviews that were, that were I had this, this sense of truth that, that I believed when I went to church and when I talked to my family and when I connected with my friends, but then I, I felt like there was this other like real world truth, like this, this world that everybody else lived in and that I needed to live in, and that, that the two actually didn't connect all that much. But that actually is a lie. 
See, one of the ways in which I think our world and many of us are completely blind is that spiritual reality is reality. It is every bit as much reality as the physical world that we inhabit because the physical world cannot explain everything that happens in your life. But we're, we're, we're brought up to think that I can't bring any of that to bear into actual reality because that would be intolerant and bigoted. Because that would be pushing my beliefs onto you. And so we all just believe whatever we want to believe over here as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And then there's this world that we operate in that we have to interact with. And I, I get the tension there. But what unknowingly sometimes happens is that we become spiritually blind so that talk of angels and demons makes us uncomfortable. Talk of miracles and God actually interacting in this world makes us feel like, well, let's not get crazy here. And yet what I want you to see is that being able to see means that spiritual reality is reality and that it integrates into this world, flesh and blood, that you live in every single day. And while we might say, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, we often condition ourselves to think, well, that doesn't really happen. While claiming to to see, we often are blind. Now what's interesting is that Sergius Paulus sees by another person being struck blind. But isn't it interesting that in this story we don't hear any preaching other than a, a, a confrontation with this false prophet? What exactly did he respond to? What did Paul and Barnabas say as they preached in the synagogues all throughout the, the land of Cyprus? When they went to the synagogues and they proclaimed Jesus, what was that like? What did they say? Well, actually, that's recorded for us, I think, in the second half of the chapter. In, in a different city, we get this long sermon that sounds a lot like Acts 2, when Peter preached, a lot like Acts 7, when Stephen preached, that this was probably a, a typical sermon that would be given in a Jewish synagogue to a Jewish context that Jesus is the one that was promised. So, let's pick it up in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came down to Antioch and Pisidia. Another Antioch, you're welcome. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, you don't want to ask a preacher that, right? I mean, because you're going to lose the floor. Of course he had something to say. So, so let me just catch you up. They leave the island of Cyprus, and they head up into Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and they end up in another city called Antioch, which isn't at all confusing, right? There was a lot of cities that named Antioch. This one was in the, the region of Pisidia. And along the way, John Mark abandons them and heads back to Jerusalem. That's going to loom large in Acts chapter 15 and actually cause a split between Paul and Barnabas. But we'll pick it up then. They head to the Jewish synagogue. And after the scripture reading of the day, the rulers of the synagogue say, Hey, do you got anything to say to encourage us? And that's where this sermon begins. Paul stands up and delivers a sermon, and my guess is it's a typical sermon that he would have preached to a primarily Jewish audience. It sounds an awful lot like Peter and Stephen, and we read it in verses 16 to 41. So here it is. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for 40 years, he put up, or he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their inherit- the land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. 
Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me is one coming, the sandals whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he said also in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. So three different psalms are quoted here. Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his father and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe even if one tells it to you. Rather than unpack all of those words, I just want to highlight four of the key themes in this early gospel preaching that I think are still true today. First, is what Paul did is he connected Jesus with the story of the Old Testament. He reminded them that Jesus doesn't come into the world in a vacuum, but part of a larger narrative story, the Jewish story, but even deeper than that, the human story of God interacting with his people. See, this is what we've been trying to do all through the Thread sermon series, is connect all of the books of the Bible, all of the prophets, to the broader story, and to, ultimately, Jesus, who's the point of the story, the fulfillment of the story. Whether it was Peter in Acts 2, or Stephen in Acts 7, or now Paul in Acts 13, they all try to connect to Jesus the promises that have come before him. To to Yahweh, the God who makes and keeps promises, whether that it was his people that would inherit the land, or whether it was to David, or to David, that always he would have a descendant uh, that would rule and reign on the throne of Israel. God is now fulfilling those promises in Jesus, and he's connecting it to the broader story. Jesus is proclaimed to be the Messiah, the one that they were waiting for, the Savior, the descendant of David, and therefore the fulfillment of all God's promises up until this point. But he also says, but you missed it. 
The Jewish people had all of these things waiting, and they killed him. They crucified the Messiah. But even that happened according to the plan that God had laid out, and God raised him from the dead. And so we see that Jesus' story is connected to the larger story of human history, and as we'll see later on, our story is connected to the same story. It's not about us, it's about Jesus. But we have a part to play. Second, it connected to the current events that they were talking about already. They had most likely already heard of John the baptizer. He was the first authoritative prophetic voice that had come to the people of God in 400 years. But as John said about himself, I'm not the Christ. I've come only to prepare the way for the one who is to come. One who I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He's that great. Paul declares, Jesus is the one that John pointed to. The last of the prophets pointing ahead to him. See, good preaching always connects to the current events of the days. Showing the relevance of the gospel story to our day in and day out life and the things that we're hearing. And Paul does this in connecting it to John and saying, John was actually about Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Which gets to the heart of the message. The good news was rooted in Jesus' death and resurrection. This was recent history, but it was history. These were actual events that happened that changed the course of human history. Jesus, the Messiah, was rejected by his people. He was executed by Pilate at the request of his people. He was hung on a tree, a cross, a symbol of God's judgment as he hung suspended between heaven and earth. All of these themes he will develop later on in his letters back to these people, but he's introducing them to the good news. Jesus was buried. Everyone knew and confirmed that he had died. Even this, he says, was fulfilled prophecy about him. But this Jesus didn't stay dead like David stayed dead, but was rather raised by God to a resurrected life, no more to experience the corruption and the decay of the flesh like David had. See, David lived and died, fulfilling the purposes of God for him in his lifetime. I love verse 36. In fact, some people that I know and admire actually have that as one of their life verses. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. It helps us to see our story within the broader story of God. It's not about us. It's about him. But we actually have a real role to play. Do you see that? David served his purpose. And when he had served his purpose, he died. And he is waiting and really, in many ways, like that, that would be a fitting epithet for our lives as well. Wouldn't it be beautiful if it was said of Kyle, Kyle served the purposes of God in his life and then he died and is now waiting. Or you serve the purposes of God in your life. See, the story isn't about you, it's about God, and yet you actually have a real role to play within the context of the story. You see, this big story of God is actually what we're in, and it gives meaning and purpose and direction to our stories. Do you realize how much pressure that takes off you? You don't have to be the hero. It doesn't have to be about you. You don't have to actualize yourself. You simply need to do what God tells you to do and find your place and your purpose within God's broader places and purposes. And it's in that that you find life. But let me tell you, if you try to make yourself the hero of the story, you want to talk about an insecure lot. How do you know if you did it? How do you know if you're the star that everybody wants or needs you to be. The reality is we're not. Jesus is. And that sets us free, doesn't it? Not to live lives that are insignificant, but to live lives that aren't the ultimate significant, but still move the purposes and plans of God forward. 
And so the, the gospel is rooted in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And finally, because of that, verse 38 and 39, we are now offered forgiveness of sin and freedom because of what Jesus has done. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. We're promised two things, forgiveness and freedom. Forgiveness of sins, meaning Jesus' death and resurrection paid your debt of sin. It wiped it away. The sacrifice that Jesus provides and the blood that he shed makes you clean and washes you and makes you new. You are forgiven in Christ. That's good news. Second, though, we see that Jesus also sets you free, which the question becomes, free from what? And he actually says, from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So I think there's two things. There's freedom from sin, but there's also freedom from the law. Let me show you. See, sin isn't just wrong. It actually takes a toll on us. It robs us of our humanity. It destroys our relationships. It mars the entire world. It's not how we were created to live. And so God, in his grace and his mercy, told us how we are to live. How we're to thrive. How to live a life in line with the design that he had created us with. See, God is incredibly loving because he tells us what his expectations of us are. That was the blessing of the law. It revealed to us God's character, and it invited us into a different kind of life, a life of human flourishing and thriving. But the problem with the law is that we couldn't keep it. It couldn't empower us to actually live differently. It, and, and Israel failed over and over and over and over again. And if you try to live according to the law and make yourself righteous before God, you're going to try and you're going to fail and you're going to fail and you're going to fail. And it does not have the power. It actually, while setting us free and inviting us into a different life, actually brings about condemnation because the truth is we know we haven't done it. We're lawbreakers and therefore sinners before God. And so as much as it invites us into freedom to live the way that we were intended to live, it also invites us into bondage when we realize we don't. That's the problem, that's the freedom that the law couldn't bring. It couldn't change your heart. It couldn't give, us, give you a new power to actually live out of new desires. But Jesus can. Jesus can. He can open your eyes to see the beauty and the wonder of who he is and what he has done. And so, while offering God's people a better way to live... The law puts us in bondage, but Jesus offers us freedom from the law and its crushing expectations. How does he do that? He fulfills it on our behalf. See, often when we talk about the gospel, we talk about the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and we forget about his life. But the life of Jesus is incredibly significant in that not only does he show us how to truly live, he actually lays down a perfect human life of righteousness, and that matters. Do you know why? Because through the gospel, not only are we forgiven of our sin, but we're actually given Jesus' righteousness before God. We're credited with Jesus' righteousness. It means this. When you stand before God on the great judgment day and you've got to like lay down your resume, you've been given Jesus' resume. That's what you get judged on. That's what you get hired on the basis of. Now, which of us would want our own resume when stacked up against Jesus? If we're being honest, none of us, right? It doesn't matter how good you are in light of like, how we compare ourselves with each other. The reality is it just doesn't meet the bar. 
Like we fall short over and over and over again. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, at least I'm not, Hitler is not going to fly on that day of judgment. Like we think of the lowest bar imaginable. You're like, well, I cleared that. Must be good. No, you are a lawbreaker deserving God's judgment and his wrath. But the good news of Jesus is not only are we forgiven of our sin, but we're actually given Jesus' righteousness so we're set free from the condemnation of the law so that when we stand before God on that great day of judgment, we're like, Jesus. And God looks at Jesus' life and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Guys, we, we call that incredibly good news. But do you know that some people can hear that news and be like, meh, not that compelling. I'm going to go live for something else. They can see, but still be blind. In Jesus, we are offered forgiveness and freedom. How do we take hold of it? We believe. We put our faith and our trust in him. So Paul's sermon, in short, connected them to the Old Testament story, applied the current events of their day to their lives, was rooted in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and offered them forgiveness of sins and freedom through what Christ accomplished. Isn't that the same thing we preach today? I sure hope so. That your life is connected to the story of God. The story isn't about you, it's about God, but you have a vital role to play in it. A story that encompasses all human history and invites us in meaning it connects to the current reality that we are facing day in and day out, making sense of the world and allowing us to see reality as it truly is. It's still rooted in the historicity of the, uh, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the perfect life he lived, the sacrificial death he died, the resurrection victory that he, he achieved, that if we believe in that, we can be saved. And now today we're offered forgiveness of sins and freedom from both sin and the law. So that upon believing, like John Newton all those years ago wrote, we can say, I once was blind, but now I see. Or like the Apostle Paul would probably say, I was blinded so that I now see. Or like Sergius Paulus might have said, he was blinded that by his blinding I can now see. So how do the people respond to that sermon? Was it mass revival like we might expect with that kind of good news? Let's read in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after, meeting in the, after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Can you imagine? But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. And they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium 
And the disciples were filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. So we see that the, res- the results, the response was mixed. There is initial excitement, and so they're invited back the next Sabbath to, to speak more. And some of the more devout Jews and converts to Judaism hang out with Paul and Barnabas. They follow them to, to learn more. But then the next Sabbath day, what happens? The whole city turns up. Can you imagine? And this is where things begin to divide, but it's not the people on the outside that begin to oppose. It's actually the people in the synagogue that start getting jealous that all of these other people are coming, and they begin to contradict Paul. And not only that, they begin to mock him and revile him. Paul and Barnabas then just take it in stride, and they say, hey, we came to you first because we needed to, but this message is for, is for everyone, Gentiles included. Jesus is the light of the Gentiles as well. And the Gentiles, when they're told this, they rejoice, and they believe. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout that whole region. And I love this phrase, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. We see that God's sovereignty in appointing people to eternal life and human responsibility, them actually responding to this gospel message are working in perfect tandem here, and the gospel explodes. But not everybody is thrilled. Some Jews then incite the powerful men and women of their city to stir up persecution and trouble for Barnabas and Paul, and they drive them out of the city. So Paul and Barnabas, on the way out, they shake the dust off their sandals as Jesus taught his disciples to do as a sign of judgment that they had rejected the good news of Jesus, and they move on to three more cities that Pastor Mike will tell you about next week, where we'll see not just opposition in um, in in voice and persecution, but actually violence. It turns to violence. But before we go this morning, I just want to ask, what do we learn from these two stories? I think the biggest question is this. Do we see? Or while claiming to see, are we blind? Has our spiritual blindness been lifted? How do you describe sight to someone who's blind? I mean, how do you describe the color blue without ever being able to see the color blue? It's hard. How do you describe the beauty and the glory of the gospel to someone who's spiritually blind and they just don't see it? Now, the good news today is you don't have to be able to see physically to be able to see spiritually. You could be blind physically, but see far more clearly than even the rest of us. Or you might be spiritually blind like John Newton. But the grace of God might even today lead you to see. See, the the Apostle Paul, I think, was so religious that he was blind to his self-righteousness. And Jesus knocked him off his horse, blinded him so that he might see something different, might see reality as it truly is. The Apostle Paul, when reflecting on this later in his life, in 2 Corinthians 4, writes this. This is from the New Living Translation. If the good news we preach is hidden behind a veil, it's hidden only from people who are perishing. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. You see, we don't go around preaching about ourselves. We preach that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so that we could know the glory of God that is as he actually is. 
What is spiritual blindness? It's looking at Jesus and being utterly uncompelled. It's seeing him but saying, eh. when's the game on again? Eh. Can we get on to what really matters now? And it says that the God of this age, Satan, is actually blinding people to not see. So what needs to happen to overcome that? Paul writes, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That, that's going back to creation. God uses his very creative power through his word to lift the veil. To shine his light into our hearts so that we see the beauty and the wonder and the glory of Christ. We see Jesus as he truly is. And when that happens, everything changes. Everything changes. Because he is the most compelling reality that you can imagine. See, John Newton never got over the grace of God for him, a slaver of all people, turned pastor. The Apostle Paul never got over the grace of God for him, persecutor of the church, turned preacher. What about you? Has God's grace so arrested your heart that you not only see, but to see is to stand in awe, to be blown away that God would do that for you because he loves you. This here is the heart of Christian worship, marveling at the grace of God for sinners like you and me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you, even now in this room, lift any spiritual blindness that might linger, that we might see not only reality rightly, but even more important, that we would see, Jesus, you rightly, and that upon seeing you, there's nothing else we want, not ultimately. God, it's your grace that blows us away. We don't deserve it tried to keep your law. Some of us didn't even try. And we failed. But you did it for us. And you opened our eyes to see. Holy Spirit, would you do that even now as I pray? Open blind eyes to see Jesus. It's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen.